all. Welcome back to K9360. This is Jill. And we're talking dogs. Actually, we're going to we get to dogs. We're going to start with horses tonight. I know, crazy, right? But we've talked a little bit in the past about how dog trainers and dog owners can borrow a page from horse owners. And uh, our friend Denny Emerson, who is on social media under Tamarack Health Farm and who writes books and has ridden horses and taught riding and schooled for 70 some years, he lives up in New England somewhere, had a kind of compelling little social media post the other day that I thought, I'm going to share that on K9360 and see what parallels we can pull through to talking about our beloved dogs. So Denny, he didn't waste any time. He says, now what? Now what indeed? It starts with genetics. But all the desirable traits in the world don't amount to a hill of beans if the person who trains the young horse doesn't do it right. And the sad reality is that many so-called trainers are uneducated, which leads to an obvious question. Why are they uneducated? So our poster is going to answer that question. He says, ask any teacher in any school across the globe, and most of them, regardless of the grade they teach, will tell you that there are A students, B students, C students, D students, and dropout students. And the reason why, the reasons why are so tricky to figure out, although billions of dollars are spent on education there are not always clear answers. Some high IQ students fail, some lower IQ students do well, with some with all the advantages fail, and some from dismal backgrounds excel. So if you're looking for a nice horse, one of the first things that in theory it would be good to ask is this, am I educated enough to do right by this young horse? The problem is we don't know what we don't know. So in some respects, it's a futile question because there are no standards. Anyone can be a horse trainer simply by saying, I am a horse trainer. And many uneducated people who are good at schmoozing get more clients than better educated people who don't know how to sell themselves. And while some do-it-yourself trainers are experts, many don't know what to do. If there is just one piece of the United States horse industry that needs fixing more than any other, it would be to find an answer to this question. The question is, I have a nice young horse. This youngster seems to have a lot of potential. Now what? One of the main problems of having uneducated people trying to train horses is that when things get dicey, which at some point they just about always do, the tendency is to resort to force. Stronger hands, stronger bits, draw reins, lunging to fatigue, even drugs. Force can create antagonism, resistance. Resistance from the horse leads to more force from the human and down the hill it goes. The better educated humans won't always avoid getting resistance from the horse, but they will have better strategies than brute force for working through them. So, what does that have to do with dogs? <laughs> Lots. But before we switch over to the dogs, let me share with you just a couple of comments on this uh, rather thoughtful blog post um, from Denny Emerson. 
Someone said, but what about time? Taking time, making time, not being in a hurry. One of the best old time trainers I worked with came out of Kentucky. He never started a horse before they were three or four, just handled them to get them used to halters, being led, hoof trimming, letting them grow up until it was time. I never saw a horse working with fear with him, and he trained many champions. In the early days, he told anti-owners that you don't take a cake out of the oven before it's ready. He died of alcoholism as the pressure of production by owners over the years took its toll. He would tell a young, nervous horse, we got all the time in the world, and it was a promise he kept as best he could. Another respondent, right, another comment says, there are too many trainers that have never actually trained a horse. And I mean haltering, leading, standing for the veterinarian and the farrier, the first lunge into something new, ground driving, first saddling, first time with a rider, first time stopping, first time cantering, anything. The adjustments that need to be made per the horse you are working, doing enough to know how they might react. The best way to get the desired behavior you were looking for and the best way to correct something simple. There are a lot of riding instructors, but not very many real horse trainers. Here's another one. Many trainers, and they've got trainers in danger quotes, are uneducated because they choose to be so. Back in my day, the commenter says, folks who wanted to train horses for a living and even those who just wanted to learn how to work with horses actually went to work with other trainers and not just one or two to learn many different skills and approaches, building their toolbox. People really committed to learning went beyond the county line, even out of state or out of the country, to work with, ex with experienced trainers. By the time I was 25, I had apprenticed with at least five well-known training facilities in five different states, New York, New Jersey, Mass Massachusetts, Ohio, and Kentucky, where multiple national world champions and Hall of Famers were being trained. Yes, it was hard work, but I learned not only what tool to use for specific problems, but also what approaches I would probably not want to use. I learned how to be professional and I did some judging. I got burnt out and I went back to school. Today is too easy for a young person to do some riding, give a lesson or two and then hang out a shingle by putting dressage, eventing, equestrian after their name on a Facebook page. And too many customers don't know how to be more discerning and to ask themselves, what is this person's experience? Do their students and horses progress? What kind of legacy are they leaving behind them? Happy, healthy horses or what? Because it's been said that you're training a horse for better or worse every time you interact with it. It's also true that a trainer is becoming better or worse every time he or she interacts with the horse. No matter how many years of experience you have or don't have, how many books you've read, how many clinics you've attended, how many masters you've studied under, if you don't understand the simple fact that you don't know it all and you never will, you will never become the best trainer you can be. Every horse has something to teach that trainer, even if it's that you were right in your thinking. Finally, trying to pick up the pieces after someone else has screwed things up makes the job doubly difficult because you have to determine if the problems stem from incorrect or inept input from another trainer or frustration from a horse who simply could not understand what was being asked or even if a physical issue is at play. 
The ability to question oneself is also important. Experience comes in when you have enough to know that what you're seeing is like something you've never seen before or you have seen before and solved, but with maybe a little twist on it. That at least gives you a starting point to diverge from the path you are on. Knowing what works for most horses is a great start, but understanding that it doesn't mean it will work every time for every horse is the door the best trainers go through on a regular basis. And of course, you must learn to actually look at the horse and truly see what he's trying to tell you. So what does this all have to do with us here on K9360? You might already be thinking it has a lot to do with us because everybody wants the magic potion that will transport them from whatever current misery or difficulty they're experiencing into whatever they feel will be the ideal situation for themselves and their dogs. I've, I've felt that way. I think we all do. But dog owners seem to want it a lot, especially if they are experiencing issues that they cannot control. Aggression, anxiety, destructiveness. What they don't realize is that these are the symptoms, not the disease, and that the vast majority of dog problems are actually people problems. A colleague of mine says, when I get an inquiry from someone because their 12-year-old rescue hound mix from the bowels of West Tennessee gets transported up to Maryland with heartworm and intestinal parasites indigenous to wildlife in the deep south with a a whole head full of I don't want to, that she has to ask herself, what's it worth to me to take on this client? The dog like that would not be a candidate for a boarding and training environment in any ethical scenario. And she says, I seriously doubt that ownership is capable of understanding that their sympathy for this dog's lot in life has almost certainly reinforced his sense of urgency in the presence of food or his degree of entitlement now that he has bitten three of the four members of the household. Dog training shouldn't be that hard, but there's kind of a climate out there right now, right? That surrounds dog training and may, makes it a difficult experience, difficult for the instructor. It doesn't have to be that way, but people seem to still be convinced that dogs are like computer chips that occasionally malfunction, that you can simply degauss and then rewrite the operating software. Eek, it doesn't quite work that way, at least not in a broader sense. The degassing takes time and that memory is never completely erased. Dogs with protracted histories of specific behavioral tendencies maintain them throughout their lives and they can resurface without much effort. When a person calls a professional and asks for help, our inclination is to provide it. Right? I mean, I always welcome questions and encourage them throughout all those initial discussions. But you got to look for the trainer who doesn't hide behind slick advertising and empty promises. That trainer will usually tell folks exactly what they think, exactly how long they think it will take, and what, it will, what will be required in terms of effort and duration in order to see any real tangible results because for the majority of dogs if you catch it early 
we can remediate successfully and expect durable change. If the pattern of training never changes, begin at the beginning, work through the middle, conclude at the end. What that looks like time-wise for each dog is vastly different, but the process is largely the same. Dog to dog to dog. We cannot assure, and where owners fail to understand is that our expectations cannot be executed their own. And when I'm asked what my expectations are at the end of training, part of me wants to blurt out, have you been listening? Or even my expectations cannot exceed yours. I can't care more than you do. So what do you expect? What do you want to see as a result of your investment of time and money? A 12-year-old dog is certainly capable of learning as are 12-year-old dog owners. Learning doesn't stop because of age. Malleability, physical, physicality can decrease as we age, but not necessarily as a byproduct of the physical aspect of maturity or any other kind of ultimate delay. When we stop learning is when nothing opposes our views. We stop learning because I've had dogs my whole life seems to confer all knowledge of all things dog to the layman, but not to the trainer that the one that sits before you with a collective experience of handling tens of thousands of dogs over the course of a lifetime. My blogger friend continues, 50 years in fact, over 40 of those years professionally as a trainer, groomer, kennel manager, tie handler, and a variety of other tasks where I was paid for my expertise or grew my expertise through the volume and the tenure of my work. One would think that fact alone would contribute some gravitas, and if not, the simple non-confrontational demonstration of how to get a dog to change his behavior and make him think it was his idea should have. <laughs> so my friend continues, but no, your sympathy for this dog's back history and your unwillingness to alter your behavior even slightly in order to encourage your dog to alter his tells me this would not be a successful working relationship I cannot change anything that wishes not to be changed mm, I'm going to write that one down I cannot change anything that wishes not to be changed and just like in the serenity prayer God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference and it seems to me the trainer you want is the one who knows the difference in every permutation of that. All right, I've shared some highlights in response to uh, Danny. Let me share some highlights in response to this one. One comment says, the more kind, forced, stress, fear-free, and positive someone claims to be is a huge red flag in their treatment of fellow humans especially those who do not share their strong opinion. It can be harsh, vitriolic, and denigrating. They don't even hide it anymore since the S&M clad celebrated, oh, came right out and showed them that talking down to people was the way, the truth, and the light. How ironic is it that these 
are often the same people who sue against dominance and alpha styles of training when what they're using is their own bastardized misinterpretation of the idea against other people in their quest to put others down. Oh, no hypocrisy for here for sure, but don't dare call them on it. Another comment says, then there are the imported dogs that aren't just suitable pets living in a house with children. In the UK, there are Romanian and Bulgarian street dogs. In the US, you seem to get meat dogs from China. The hapless owners are made to feel they have failed if they can't make it all work. One woman says, we get dogs from the islands, dogs from Canada and Mexico, dogs from the deep south. They've never known human kindness but are expected to make great pets. Yeah. In 2019, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were 44 deaths by dog in this country. 44 deaths by dog. I'll leave you to speculate how many of those attacking dogs, the untrained ones, were, quote, rescue dogs. Nobody keeps the stats. Trying to make dogs into furry little humans with human attributes is hugely disrespectful to dogs because you aren't appreciating them for who and what they are. Trying to make them into furry humans puts expectations on them that they can never live up to, which is also nothing but disrespect towards the animal. Animals will never form their own government, do algebra, make decisions based on logical thinking. They're just not moral beings. And decisions or behaviors that are made by instinct and learned associations, those are nothing more and nothing less. This is not to say that animals have no emotions, but to ascribe those emotions to human ones does not do that animal any favors. Anthropomorphism is the great dark underpinning of animal rights, says another commenter. Animal rights is not about loving animals, it's about hating humans in order to achieve equality between humans and animals. Hmm. Uh, they pin the ideology on the single fact that animals feel pain just like humans, therefore they should be treated as, as equals. I'm not sure my dog wants to be equal to me. You know? It's also, all of this, why we have to be super careful about what's called behavioral science. Cognitive, canine cognition, those kinds of studies. Um, the studies that wanna talk about how dogs can name objects are quite different than the studies like we saw on 60 Minutes maybe a week and a half ago uh, on comparative oncology and what we can learn from dogs about cancer that can be beneficial to humans. Behavioral science might not be actual science. It is a hodgepodge of biased investigations, but will they stand up to the rigor of real science? If the purpose of science is to reveal nature, but quote, science differs from objective observation, it's not science. What is this science thing yielded? Nothing we didn't already know. If you think of the term instinctual drift, have you heard of that? It was coined by a grad student of Fred Skinner, a guy named Keller Breland. After 15 years, 
Keller left Skinner. He and his wife Marion published a landmark paper called The Misbehavior of Organisms. And that was a dig at Skinner's magnum opus, The Behavior of Organisms. The Breland cited many examples of how specific species resisted Skinner's claim that operant conditioning controls behavior, that we only do what we are rewarded for. For example, Breland taught pigs how to drop big coins in a big piggy bank. Consistently, the pigs would quickly learn this behavior and then stop picking the coins up. Instead, they would root around the coins with their noses. How do pigs get their food in nature? They root things around with their noses, with their snout. An instinctive set of behaviors disrupted the click and the treat. The Skinnerian perspective on nature versus nurture might not be all there is because it's a combination of both. Learning is not a be-all or an end-all. Nature doesn't really give a fig about learning. Nature respects doing by natural and learned behaviors with no preference for either one. An animal not doing its instinctive behaviors may survive, but that has no influence on the rest of the species. There are behaviors that are the result of simple gene variations between individuals and the, and um, if the new behavior is superior and leads to survival, it may eventually shift the entire species. Think about things like stripe patterns in zebras or the bill length of Darwin's finches. The only species that can really benefit from renegade behavior are those that can imitate their fellows, and there are very few species that can do that. So what do, what do we know about this relative to dogs? Think about border collies and cattle dogs. Border collies are what sheep herders call headers. They confront the sheep from the front. They use that kind of famous border collie eye to get the sheep to break, and then they bite them to drive them in a specific direction. Australian cattle dogs are called healers or blue healers. They bite the heels of the cattle to drive them. So cattle herders are called drovers because they drive the cows. But here's the point. Here's the point. The selective manipulation of these genes, that is selective breeding, is what affects the dog's behavior in pretty major ways and pretty permanently. You can use a collie type dog to herd cows, but in Australia that didn't work. Confronting feral cows in the outback doesn't work if the dog heads them. They explode in a hundred directions. That is obviously the opposite of herding, right? <laughs> that dog isn't much use to you if you've got to put cattle in a barn. Um, if you've got to move them from pasture to pasture, you don't want them running all over the place. So breeding for specific traits until they got one that could consistently heal the cattle produced the Australian cattle dog. What did Donald McCaig once family say? It took 400 years of selective breeding to produce a working border collie. Breed, start breeding those dogs for the show ring and you can destroy them in a decade. So you can modify a core behavior but you can't try to maintain control of a dog's behavior opposite to the dog's breeding. Didn't Caesar call that? Don't ever work contrary to mother nature, I think was how he said it. There are exceptions. Some healers don't heal. 
and uh, I have a friend who put an obedience trial championship on a blue tick coonhound. That wasn't the easiest thing in the world. But the point is that the influence on, on behavior based on the consequences of that behavior is not pristine, complete, or rock solid. It's heavily influenced by the animal's genes. Skinner didn't know that because he never actually trained animals. Braylon learned it 15 years after he got started. He came late to the table. And many behavioral scientists since then have simply never gotten there. We dog trainers have known this for 15,000 years. That science doesn't always reflect reality, and that kind of takes us back to where we started, right? Um, now what? Right? Back to where we started with our investigation of the horse. I'm going to reread you. Danny Emerson's opening line, it starts with genetics, but all the desirable traits in the world don't amount to a hill of beans if the person who trains the young horse doesn't do it right. And the sad reality is that many so-called trainers are uneducated. Right? So we start with horses, work our way around to dogs, come back to something that's about horses that turns out to be about dogs as well and in both instances because we're talking about domestic animals really turns out to be about us yeah all right you guys that is it for us this week thanks so much for hanging out with me for a little while for following this train of thought for engaging these little thought puzzles that come to us from some animated conversations in social media where it seems to all be happening these days I will uh, see you back here next week as we march another week closer to the big jolly holiday hope your stress is under control it will be stick around the celebrations coming up guaranteed Donald Donald have you covered thanks for being here Thanks for listening to us. Thanks for hanging out at KZUM and KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Take good care.